I find misinformation on both sides of the discussion, which I think is more problematic for people because I think everybody's hoping that one side's telling the truth and one side's lying. And the, the problem is, unfortunately, there's lies coming from both sides. And I'm pretty well known, I think, for uh, ruffling a lot of feathers on both sides because I don't care who you are if you're presenting misinformation or wrong information, I'm going to call you out on it. I don't care. So then began asking fundamental questions about the origins of this virus. Because from my perspective, you have to understand as much about a problem as possible if you're going to solve it. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. We've all been through a lot over the last two and a half years. Everyone's experience has been different. But the common ground we do share is that the ground has shifted beneath us. Our lives feel incredibly different. And some of us just want to move on. And I get that. It's a reasonable response to trauma, to what we've endured. For me, that's not the response I'm choosing to take. I want to know more. And I want answers. I'm not satisfied with the communication that has come from anyone in charge throughout this entire pandemic. So when I come across an expert, someone who is well-versed and steeped in science, medicine, law, I'm very interested in learning his perception of the last two and a half years and what he thinks should be done about it, which is why I've invited Dr. Richard Fleming to the program today. Dr. Fleming is uniquely positioned to give us insight that others just don't have. He's not only an MD, but also a PhD and a JD. So his knowledge base encompasses so many of the realms of this pandemic. So I'm thrilled to be able to share his knowledge with you and also provide us all, an action item that we can take to get answers, to get the information that sadly has been withheld from us. Normally at this point, I introduce our guest with a short bio, but there's nothing short about Dr. Fleming's bio. So I'd like to refer you to a video in which Dr. Fleming discusses his own career. I'll provide the link in the show notes. And of course, for more information on Dr. Fleming's research and accomplishments, please check out his website at FlemingMethod.com. My interview with Dr. Richard Fleming, right after this. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free empowered dating playbook. Dr. Fleming, welcome to the program. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. 
I really appreciate all your work. I've been following what you've been doing. It's incredibly important. I'm sure you had other ideas with what you would do with the last two and a half years of your life, but here we are. And you have been one of the bold and uh, outspoken truth tellers in a context and a landscape where there's been so many who are unwilling and perhaps afraid. Your work and and what we'll get to in a few moments uh, is really trying to hold those accountable for what we've all endured worldwide. But let's back it up a little bit for those who maybe aren't on the same page. And there's been so much quote, misinformation and disinformation. And I think a lot of people don't know what to trust and who to trust. So I'd love to present to the audience where you came into this space and how you came to understand that much of what we were hearing and were told to believe from the government, from these agencies that we have trusted and thought we could trust has not in fact been accurate. And so if you're willing to start maybe from the beginning, how did you get into this space and come to realize that you needed to speak out? Well, I guess I came into this space back in seventh grade, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but but I'm not sure that the audience wants to hear the full story. I mean, I'm originally a PhD in physics. I got recruited way back. The JFK administration had implemented some advanced programs for mutants. And so during seventh grade of my life, I and a 30 in my group, though I know there were more groups in the country, were taken out and selected by the government to start some advanced training. So while I was doing secondary school, I was also working on my PhD in physics. And I guess that's really, you know, that is really the beginning because that training as a PhD, you know, I have three advanced degrees, a PhD, an MD, and a JD. And I frequently tell people a PhD teaches you how to solve problems. An MD treats problems and a JD causes problems. So <laughs> my, my first introduction in the world was how to solve problems. And, you know, and science advances itself typically in paradigm shifts, you know, uh, jumps versus slow steady gates. And it's usually somebody who sits and looks at something and realizes that the approach up to that time has been erroneous and therefore isn't going to really advance. And so you make these shifts and that typically leads you into resistance all the way along. So my real first introduction with a lot of this would then jump forward to the mid-1970s, 1976, when I joined American Heart as the youngest faculty member. But that placed me on three advanced committees, one of which had to do with heart disease and cholesterol. I became actively involved in discussing that and training physicians and the lay public in a variety of venues on what causes heart disease. And then by 1994, which was after my fellowship, actually, which was 89 to 92, as a cardiologist slash nuclear cardiologist, I had shifted the paradigm and said, well, heart disease, while we've been talking about cholesterol and fats, is really due to at least 12 different things. Now I know it's more than that, but I really haven't updated the theory because everybody's kind of struggling, I think, with the 12 that I proposed. At that time, I included viruses and bacteria as components of what can cause inflammation of blood clotting or inflammatory thrombotic responses. And that produces diseases like heart disease and strokes and high blood pressure and diabetes and cancer and a variety of health problems. So like it or not, I guess in 1994, I really had entered the field of infectious disease, which is not what I wanted to do. 
because I thought there were enough people with the last name of Fleming that had already been doing infectious disease, and I wanted to stay out of that. I also didn't want to go into the food industry because there's enough Flemings in the food industry, but I ended up eventually getting sucked into that also in this process. Your listeners might as well know that I was involved in a federal criminal case that I got indicted for billing fraud. It's on FlemingMethod.com. It's the case. You can go look at it, knock yourselves out, be as judgmental as you want to be. I don't care. Truth of the matter is, is that I was one of the cardiology fellows who was involved in the new nuclear isotopes. There were research drugs in those days. They are what are used today. And To make a long story short, I actually discovered that Big Pharma was lying and I changed my protocols and then the government accused me of billing fraud. And and even though what I admitted to was the only correct way for billing was something that they were clearly after me for upsetting Big Pharma. And it also turns out that the last two and a half years have painfully pointed out that much of the research I was doing on the theory of heart disease through my work on what causes the inflammation happens to be the same key receptors called NER5AC that Shi Zhang Li was working on with this glycoprotein and this virus because that is, in fact, the attachment site for the virus. It, it attaches to that and then it swings into the ACE2 receptor. So I didn't know, obviously, that we were working on the same pathway for different reasons, I think. The process of uncovering the big pharma issue with radioactive isotopes, which I claim, you know, resulted in them billing in excess of $20 million in a decade, over radiating people with about a third of what shut down that Japanese reactor about 15 years ago, and missing critical heart disease that has now been proven at multiple conferences. I also discovered that our images were erroneous. We were actually... Nobody had been checking to see if our imaging cameras were accurate. They were always checking to see if the pictures were pretty. It's called qualitative control, but they nobody had been doing quantitative control to see if the counts are actually accurate. And it turns out they're not. So I uncovered that, which didn't make a lot of people happy. In the end, it did lead to a patent that I have that we now call Fleming Method because the name I gave to the pet was too long for people to remember or want to remember. I guess I like the name, but not other people. So that is a, that's a long history to get to the fact that in the beginning of January 2020, all of you were beginning to hear about this virus, and I was sick with it, actually, at that time. In January of 2020, I, I had already been infected. I was living in Los Angeles about a mile and a half from the tent city on the beach. I got rather sick uh, during that time, but as you can see, I'm still here, much to the chagrin of some people, I think. So I did what I've been trained to do as a research physician, which is to review what has been published, seriously published by people that are qualified, to look to see what we knew about treating viruses, what might be available in any any component. And uh, after about three and a half, four months, I began a clinical trial, a national clinical trial. So your listeners, if, if we dig in enough here, we'll see that I find misinformation on both sides of the discussion, which I think is more problematic for people because I think everybody's hoping that one side's telling the truth and one side's lying. And the, the problem is, unfortunately, there's lies coming from both sides or misinformation and clear misinformation. And I'm pretty well known, I think, 
for uh, ruffling a lot of feathers on both sides because I don't care who you are if you're presenting misinformation or or just wrong information, I'm going to call you out on it. I, I don't care. My job, again, isn't to give you opinions. You've got, as I keep telling people, friends and family to do that with. So I began doing that, but I also then began asking fundamental questions about the origins of this virus. Because for from my perspective, you have to understand as much about a problem as possible if you're going to solve it. So we completed that study. It's the only research study that has used multiple drugs. It is the only research study that has actually layered drugs on top of each other sequentially to see what the effects are. And it's the only only study that actually measures the changes because that's what Fleming method allows us to do. It's the only yet to the best of my knowledge, the only the only method that that quantitatively measures changes inside the body, period. And we've used it for heart disease, we've used it for cancer, and it turns out it's very useful for everything, including infections. So we use that to measure actual outcomes because, you know, as in the first part of the study where we had people as outpatients and they had an option to take medications or not. But half the people chose not to, and in three days, 72 hours, which were our intervals that were critical, which turn out to be the intervals that are critical for infectious disease, 60% of the people who took nothing got better. Hopefully that answered that question. Well, I'm curious when you talk about that there's been misinformation on both sides. I think on one side, we've had people perhaps become a a bit hyperbolic, even the initial statistics that we were seeing in mainstream media were showing that this was not a disease that was going to kill everybody. In fact, even people over 75, 99% of them were going to be okay, to your point, without doing anything. And then on the other side, people would say, I mean, there's people who've denied that the virus even exists at all. So yeah. what are some, when you talk about the, yeah, they're like, no, it's, it's just a fabrication. Yeah. So when you, when you talk about the lack of truth on both sides, what are some of the key concerns you have on both sides? How long do we have? Yeah. We might as well start with this perspective. When people say there is no such thing as an asymptomatic spreader, they are wrong. Okay. So for the first three to five days of any infection before the first part of your immune system called the innate, I-N-N-A-T-E, which are the T cells, kick in and release a whole series of chemicals, you're asymptomatic, but you're infected. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Reiner Schumach was one of the people that started off on the Crimes Against Humanity Tour, and he kept insisting that there was no such thing, and he used the paper from Wuhan. And if you look at that paper from Wuhan, it shows the exact opposite. It shows that asymptomatic carriers exist. I mean, that's what the paper showed. But he's standing there in front of people saying, uh, and there's no asymptomatic carriers, and here's the paper that proves it. Uh, no, Reiner, it's not. It proves that there are. In fact, within that paper, they have these beautiful color coding of the the Wuhan area, and it shows that the asymptomatic spreaders are smack dab in the middle of where the infection is. Now, I don't think you need an advanced degree to realize that that's probably where you're going to find the asymptomatic errors, where people are infected. There's a variety of reasons for why that happens, but the point is asymptomatic errors exist. In fact, the vaccines right up front probably produced a lot of asymptomatic errors because a lot of the numbers that people think are wrong, I would argue, are in fact correct. (laughs) That's the problem. Everybody wants to argue it because it gives their position to be valid. But it's more important 
to understand, and again, this is one of the things about being a PhD is that you have to look at things. I mean, this theory that I came up with, this inflammatory response really required me the guy who was leading the charge out there to discuss this, to sit down and say, our data is not really explaining what it should be explaining. What am I missing, right? When you take that approach, you have to go through some uncomfortable periods of time so you get used to being uncomfortable. And then, But I'm originally a physicist, so I, I, I live in probability, which would drive most people nuts unless you're a physicist, and we like it. So let's bounce through some of these numbers. And for your listeners, I just simply ask, please listen all the way through what I say versus listening to the first part of what I say. Let's start with vaccine efficacy. Those numbers are correct. They're absolutely correct. You look at the data, you look at the emergency use authorization documents, they're correct. The problem is that they're not what you think they mean. Mm. Generally, people think that vaccine efficacy means we're talking about you not getting sick. That's not how vaccine efficacy is calculated. Vaccine efficacy is calculated based upon the people who got sick, okay? Not the people who didn't get sick. So vaccine efficacy looks at vaccinated people, how many get sick with the disease. So we have a virus. And in fact, if we get into it, I'll explain that the PCR test has shown us that there are three viruses that we're actually calling SARS-CoV-2. It's not one. It's three mm-hmm. biologically gain-of-function viruses that we have the money trail and publication trail and everything to show. And you compare the people who get sick who get vaccinated with the people who get sick who didn't get vaccinated in the trial. And that's how you get the vaccine efficacy. But that's not why you take a vaccine. You take vaccines generally because you think it will keep you from getting sick. Now, good news, bad news, no vaccine keeps you from getting infected. No vaccine has ever kept people from getting infected. No vaccine has ever kept people from spreading infection. And I know Anthony Fauci has said this will keep you from getting infected. And I don't care. In this case, Anthony Fauci is wrong. On the asymptomatic spreaders, Anthony Fauci is correct. But if you look at vaccine efficacy, it it really, you want to know what is the likelihood I won't get really sick or come down with the disease that makes you sick enough that you get hospitalized, which is what we call COVID, coronavirus disease first detected in 2019. That's why it's called COVID-19. That's the disease, not the virus. So let's look at the emergency use authorization documents. If we go in there and we do the statistics to determine whether What you're looking at is real or not? Is there something really different? And we go in and we do that. That's called absolute risk reduction. And when you do that analysis and you look at the Pfizer vaccine in the EUA documents themselves, if you do that, it shows that there's no statistical difference between the people who get sick, whether they get vaccinated or not. If you look at the Moderna data, There's no statistical difference between people who get sick, whether they get vaccinated or not. Now, Janssen, the one that everybody wants to call Johnson, Johnson, but it's really Janssen, Janssen out of Belgium, showed two sets of data. They showed it at 14 days and 28 days post-vaccine. And for your listeners, Pfizer Moderna is the lipid nanoparticle mRNA that required two uh, injections. AstraZeneca and Janssen are DNA adenovirus vaccines that require one injection. 
for Janssen, they collected data at 14 days and 28 days after the injection. And it turns out that at 14 days, if you look at the data, statistically, there is a benefit to getting the Janssen vaccine. There were fewer people statistically who came out down with the disease COVID. However, they also provided the 28-day data, and by 28 days, that difference was gone. So by one month, roughly, four weeks, there was no statistical benefit to getting the Janssen vaccine. So that's what the data shows us. But even though it's not statistically different, there was a little benefit because the purpose of vaccines, and I know people hate the term, but they're actually called drug vaccine biologics. They do something that cause your body to react, okay? So even if you don't want to call them that, technically gene therapy is a drug vaccine biologic. It's something you give to somebody that causes your body to have a reaction. That's just the definition of it. If you don't like the definition, that's too bad. It's like the definition of a horse. If you don't like the definition too bad, it's already been decided that long time ago. <laughs> we don't get to change it in 2022 and say, well, we're going to call these cows now. And, and you know, it just doesn't work that way. So if we, if we look at the upfront data that everybody gets distressed about, again, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I don't stress out about it. It's just science. If you look at the early reports where they said the people that were being admitted to the hospital with COVID were more likely to be unvaccinated, that's completely true. That's completely true. The people that got vaccinated had a slight edge protection because they were making an immune response to the Wuhan HU1 spike protein, which was the prevalent type of this virus that was out there. It wasn't a statistical benefit, but it was enough that you could see it showing up in the numbers. And what happened then is as the vaccine was being used, we don't have time to go into it in an interview, but I I do it in the presentations. It put pressure selection on the virus. The vaccines put pressure selection for the virus to have mutational changes to escape the effect of the vaccine, much the same way as if you overuse an antibiotic, you develop antibiotic resistance. The same concept, but vaccine versus drugs. And I just remember the president saying that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and his patience was wearing thin. And as someone who chose not to take the vaccine, I found that frustrating to hear. So you are saying that that pressure selection was part of this mass vaccination campaign with a non-sterilizing vaccine. Is that correct? Well, the result of the vaccine put pressure selection on the virus. It just simply did that. I mean, if you, if you track it out, and I've I've done this for people, and for some reason, I don't see anybody else doing this. I don't know why, but I'll I'll put the sets of data and I'll overlay them so you can see the effect of the vaccines and the variants, and you can see it real time, right? So up front, that's what we saw. Now, the the reality is that this virus doesn't just have a spike protein. It has a nucleocapsid, an envelope, and a membrane, and a number of other structural proteins, but they selected just one. So As the vaccine program was rolling out, this put pressure selection for these other variants to occur. And you may or may not remember there was alpha, then beta, then gamma, then lambda, then mu. Then, I mean, all of you have kind of learned a bit of the Greek alphabet with no idea. You know, they're pretty simple. You know, and there's today there's 28 variants that exist. There's six Omicron, three Delta, a wide variety of other changes, some that don't even have those types of Greek numbers to them as as you track out the nucleotide-based sequences, which is how we know that these differences occur. So what happened was up front, there was an advantage for the people that were vaccinated. Obviously, they had uh, the Wuhan HU1, and that represented most of what they got. Well, they were at an advantage, but then these other variants were there. 
and that would take them a little bit longer to recover. And then they would essentially share that virus person to person with other folks and other people would get it. Now, over the course of time, what's happened is as the general population of the U.S., for example, has, I think we're somewhere between 66 and 67 percent of the population has been infected one way or the other with these viruses. Now, what we're saying is that the, the data has flipped because the people that have had changes of multiple variants and all the parts of the viruses now are building immunity to all the different segments, all the different proteins, the spike protein, nucleic acid, m- membrane, envelope, all the rest of that. Where the vaccinated people are not, they're still just focused on Wuhan HE1 for the spike protein. And so now what we're seeing is the data now shows that the people that are being getting sicker and getting admitted with COVID are the vaccinated people because the unvaccinated people that have been sharing it back and forth have immunity to many more parts of the virus and many more variants. So all of that data is actually correct. People want to pick and choose what they want, but there's a great, I think, beauty, if you will, to stepping back and saying, let's look at this scientifically. Let's not look at it, which sides are in which. And now what you see is an explanation, a scientific understanding and explanation of why the data has panned out the way it has. They were correct up front. But I would argue you could also make the argument, you know, you use the statement, uh, it's a disease of the unvaccinated. You could just as easily take that same information and say, no, it's really a disease of the vaccinated because it's the pressure selection of the vaccinated that drove the variants. Okay. But I don't want to get into those types of discussions because, you know, I, I explained the science. What I don't want people to do is to have this animosity to people that have been vaccinated or masked or whatever, because I would I encourage people to ask why people got vaccinated, why they masked up. Because many people I think we're trying to do what they thought was the right thing to do. And I can't hold that type of thing against people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of bad people who do things for bad reasons. I'm not going to hold good people trying to do things for the right reason under some type of, of cloud. I just, they don't need that. There's enough garbage going on, on this planet. We don't need to layer yeah. that onto people. So that's an example of misinformation that has come from both sides, depending upon where you're at in the time sequence. Mm-hmm. There's so many aspects of the last two and a half years and people have, are having a hard time trusting and knowing who to trust. And you talked about misinformation on both sides, which I find it sad and maybe it was inevitable, but I, I find it sad that this has become so politicized and that we've had to take sides. And then when people felt that the alphabet agencies, CDC, NIH, FDA, weren't being forthcoming with information. I mean, even Fauci admitted to a noble lie at one point. And I guess Dr. Burks, I haven't read her book, but apparently she's admitted to lying to the administration. Then as we get back to the trust element that has been Mm -hmm. so disturbing as an American who I was raised to be I, again, I don't know why this got so politicized. My father was a lifelong Democrat, my mother a lifelong Republican. So I had this nice balanced perspective, being able to look at both sides of a concern and see that there's probably a decent argument on both sides because the two people I love most and respect most and I value both of their intellects, they came to different conclusions. So, but I really respect that you admittedly will say, I may totally go against something that I published and firmly believe for a long time, because as a true scientist, I want to remain open to the information. And yet 
we have felt as a public, I mean, I was speaking for a lot of us, I certainly can say that we have felt so out of sorts. Who can we trust? And now here we are where I don't like what is actually happening. You mentioned that, you know, and this leads into the conversation about the Crimes Against Humanity Tour and the 10 Letters campaign. You know that Fauci was involved with gain of function. Mm -hmm. And so elaborate a bit about that in terms of how you frame this and believe this to be crimes against humanity, as opposed to someone who might say, listen, it was a novel coronavirus. It was a brand new pandemic. I mean, he did the best he could. This was maybe incompetence, perhaps, but not willful duping of the population and a crime, in fact. Right. Well, you know, for a crime to occur, somebody has to be doing something that's illegal that they intentionally and knowingly did. Those are two critical components. The person knew there was a problem, knew that they were breaking the law, and yet decided of their own free will that they were going to go ahead and do something anyway. You know, as you track through, it's really more than two decades, but to keep it somewhat contained in just the coronavirus area, it's about two decades. It dates easily back to 1999, if not before. And that was Health and Human Services that was getting involved in that type of thing. But what happens is during those two decades worth of time, we see a lot of money coming out of NIH and NIAID specifically. So NIH is the umbrella structure of which the National Institutes of Health has a lot of agencies underneath it. One is the National Cancer Institute. One is the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Disease and a variety of others. The goal of which is to do research and to investigate and to to try to be helpful. So the research money that came out of NIAID was being sent out. And what happens is that researchers submit grants. Now, as an educational point, most people would probably think that the way this works is that somebody does research and says, I'd like to do something new, and then writes a grant proposal to do that something new and submits it to get funding. Mm -hmm. Here's the reality. That's not how it's done. The reality is, if you want to get a second grant, you have to have something that happened out of the first grant. Mm. And so the way this is frequently done, and I didn't start this, and and it's not my fault. Okay, so (laughs) whether you like it or not, it's not my fault. Typically, what researchers will do is they will do research and they will find something and they will then write a grant for that. Mm. And by the way, everybody in the system knows this is how this is done. Mm. So anybody who says that this is illegal or fraudulent or anything else, forget that. Everybody knows this is how this is done because everybody wants their money to be productive. So a person, researcher will do it. They will then write a grant that includes the work they've already done that they know will have a positive outcome. So when the grant money comes to them and it comes time to turn in a result, there will be a positive result and the government and everybody else will say, well, that was worth spending money on. They got a positive result. We'll give them money for the next time they ask. Well, now, so they use that money to do further research beyond their original point. And now they have the new research that they've done to submit the next grant for. This is how this works, like it or not. 
um, because nobody gets reinforced for coming up. Nobody gets reinforced for saying, you know, we looked at this drug and it didn't do anything. It, it didn't make any difference. Oh, well, nobody's excited about publishing that. And well, we're not going to give you another grant. Right. Now, I actually, one of the things that I did do that people don't know about, but it's also in the CV, is uh, the Biden administration, before it took office, asked me, along with some other people, to do some, hold some town hall meetings for people to talk about what the upcoming Affordable Care Act and, and all of that. And, you know, I did that and I talked about some of the problems that people were interested in, but I also then put together, I may have been the only one to do this. I did it with help of some people who actually attended who were kind enough to transcribe notes. But one of the things I proposed is that we should and you can tell the fact that we didn't do this means nobody took this favorably in Washington, D.C. So my proposal was, look, what we would do is one of the explanations for why drugs cost so much is because they're so expensive to research on, right? Mm-hmm. And the companies claim, you know, their, their R&D, their research and development arm costs way too much. And so they have to recoup that money somehow. So my argument was, all right. Let's really get actively involved with this if we're going to do this as a country. When a drug company comes up with a new drug for whatever disease you want, let's say high blood pressure, then we should be saying that we will allow that to be moved forward if the drugs that we have don't work or not very well, or this is a new approach, a different mechanism for controlling the high blood pressure. Or it looks like it's going to have a much more substantial benefit, right? And now we'll say, okay, drug company, you spent X amount of dollars to get it to this point. Now, we will take it as the U.S. government, and we will fund research, but we will send it out to people who know how to do that research. And whatever their result is, will get published, period. Right. Good, bad, or indifferent, period. So that we benefit from it, so that we have the knowledge base, so it's not something that's shoved under the rug, so nobody knows about it. And we will give you an FDA license for this drug if it does a better job or provides a different mechanism of action that might be the answer for somebody who normally doesn't do it. And then we will give it back to you, but you, Big Pharma, will sell it for the same price that you currently sell drugs for because your argument that you had to pay so much for the development of it just went away. Mm-hmm. And the American people benefit because that price control will be established. So therefore, it's a justified expense for us to be spending our tax dollars on. Now, I thought that was a good idea. And clearly, nobody else agreed with that because it was sent in and you haven't heard boo about that, right? Stupid me. <laughs> but that, that's the scientific approach to, okay, you have a problem. If you can prove this is worth doing, we will do this. Then all the data comes out and then you can make a clean decision and the price of drugs don't go up. And Big Pharma didn't have to spend the money to do that. So it's a win-win, I thought, for everybody. But that's just stupid me. The funding of research and the entanglements with pharmaceutical corporations funding not only research, but also the journals in which the research is published. And the fact that you just spoke to of the file drawer problem, which is if the hypothesis is not supported by the research finding, 
that information might be very valuable in and of itself, and yet it's never published. So it goes into a file drawer. We have tons of research being done that we don't, or we aren't able to avail ourselves of the information just because the hypothesis wasn't shown to be true or they didn't get the results they wanted. Right. I proposed some years back to uh, the cholesterol, several of the companies that make HMG CoA reductase inhibitors or what everybody calls statins, mm. that we should do a research study where we take people that have elevated lipids, cholesterol and triglycerides, and we have a reason to believe they have heart disease and immediately start them on those drugs while at the same time teaching them how to change their diet and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then six months down the line, it was just a guesstimate for the amount of time, but it's based upon what I've seen research-wise. Six months down the line, after they have learned to make these dietary and lifestyle changes, pull them off those drugs and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought that was a win-win scenario because that allows Big Pharma to say, Mr. and Mrs. USA, we want you to take our drugs. We were part of a study. After six months, 53% of the people no longer needed our drugs. 47% continued to need them for benefits. Now, how is that not a win-win for Big Pharma? Because you get to look like you actually care about the people. You get <laughs> what? See, if 53% of the people need that amount of time to learn how to modify their diet and lifestyle, we will then have cut down the cost of having them take these medicines long-term with the potential side effects. We will have demonstrated that we cared enough to get them under control to reduce mm -hmm. the risk of having a myocardial infarction or what most people call a heart attack, but they are two different things, heart damage. And big pharma can sit there and go, we don't want you to take our drug forever. We mm -hmm. just want you to take it long enough to help you learn how to modify your diet and lifestyle. And if you need us for some reason in the future, just remember we were the people who cared enough about you to do a drug trial to see if we couldn't get you to live a healthier lifestyle so you didn't need our drug. I'm sorry, in my little brain, I think that that's a win-win. I mean, if I were a patient, I'd go, of course, put me on that drug. Come on, I've got a 53% chance that after six months, if I follow the dietary and lifestyle uh, the way I should, I won't need any drugs. I'll go for that. I mean, one of the beautiful things about Fleming Method is it can actually measure what happens in the tissue so you can prior to SARS-CoV-2 coming up, we were using it for cancer treatment and heart treatments because the question is always, why do some people get better and some people get worse on these drugs? Well, wouldn't it be nice to know right up front? And because Fleming Method can quantify the tissue changes, you can literally do the study, find the problem, provide a treatment for a month, repeat the study and say, well, Mrs. Jones, that worked for you. Or Mrs. Jones, that drug didn't work for you. Instead of giving you five more months of chemotherapy, let's find a drug regimen that works for you instead of spending over $100,000 on you. Six months that isn't going to make any difference because you're not responding to it. Mm -hmm. And let's find the right treatment for you. Wow. Save time, lives. I don't know why we would want to do that. <laughs> no, no, Something no, about no the Hippocratic yeah. Oath, but right. that's obviously not the focus of a lot of people. A lot of people, their focus is making money, getting mm -hmm. time and attention. 
It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast, and I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page, and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May, Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. Dr. Fleming, is it true that Pfizer has not released the actual ingredients though? It is, so is that where some of this concern comes where people go, they're not forthcoming with yeah. what's actually happening? And so then people are left to go, well, okay. And then they hear something random on some yeah. social media channel and then they're off to the races with snake venom and graphene oxide. So it, it kind of gets back to that point of, not trusting the public enough to be able to tolerate some of the unknowns and let people make their own decisions. And and to your point about science in general, where true scientists should always be questioning, testing theories, being willing to accept when their theory doesn't play out in this particular study. But we've also had this very heavy handed, Dr. Fauci says, I am science. A lot of people then, even in the face of that, (laughs) the people get a bit rebellious because we're being treated like children. And then sometimes go, well, if that's what he says, I'm, I'm off in the other direction a hundred percent. So where did, where do you go with that? The point about Fauci that you, in fact, do know that he lied to Rand Paul in front of Congress and said there was not gain-of-function research happening, and you say it was, that he did, in fact, know what was happening. It was, in fact, a crime. So where do we go from here? I know that you are working very hard to expose this, but it's also in the face of a lot of people who've already, (laughs) they've already decided Fauci did the best he could. I took four jabs, so... I'm really not open to anything that Fleming has to say and anyone else. Just like there's people grasping at terrain and all the other nonsense on this side, you've got people on the other side, just like you just stated, that are, listen, if I can believe what Anthony Fauci is saying, then I'm good to go, right? They've got a handle on it. And this is one of the things that I've cautioned people with this lateral move by Anthony Fauci. You know, everybody is talking about He's stepping down from being NIAID director, but nobody seems to have read the statement that he actually came out with. Fauci's statement was basically that he's not retiring. You know, even though he's resigning from this, he is not retiring. It was on the second page of what he said. And he's moving on to assist and teach and continue his work in the area and to mentor people for future pandemics. 
Okay, there's nothing about this that is anything but a lateral, I'm now getting out of your way. And I think from the vast majority of people's perspective, what are they hearing now? Anthony Fauci is going to resign. The CDC is admitting it's made mistakes. So we're good. We're good. <laughs> right. Because look, the government has our best interests at heart and they're implementing the changes that are necessary which is a different perspective you get than if you realize, wait a minute, this government has been paying for the development of biological weapons mm -hmm. that are in, in violation of a treaty that we did. And we were the country that prevented the ability to validate whether countries are making these weapons or not. And we're still doing it. That's the problem. And from Anthony Fauci's perspective, listening to all this other nonsense, all this misinformation, this is golden. I mean, if I were on that side of the field advising these people what to do, I would say, don't say a word, let them argue. And what I'm trying to do is to not so much argue, but to say, ladies and gentlemen, here's the data. Mm -hmm. This is not an easy position to be in. This is saying, I hate to say this. I mean, I don't kill the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> right. type approach, right? The message is you're being conned on both sides of it. The vast majority of people giving misinformation are not used to anybody saying, um, stop, time out. Mm -hmm. What you just said is completely unfounded by facts. Mm -hmm. And so we've beaten up one side enough on this. Let's take Anthony Fauci for the other side. Okay. Anthony Fauci, you're saying that remdesivir is a good drug. Now, I, I will grant to you that I am not as willing to say that this is a drug killing people because the damage that we see in kidneys and liver not only occurs with remdesivir, but it occurs with the virus. Okay. So is it the virus or remdesivir? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. hydroxychloroquine. Could it prolong or produce a bad heart rhythm? Yeah. But guess what? So can the virus. So is that hydroxychloroquine or the virus? But here's the thing. I know from my research, because one of the beauties of doing this clinical trial that I did, was we could actually measure the effect of drugs in combination. And so even though there were something like 10 different treatment regimens, it turned out to be 52 different drug treatment combinations in the end. And one of the things that was very interesting was that remdesivir did work as a first-line drug in 28% of the people it was given to. Now, if you're that 28% of the people, you think that this stuff is gold. Mm -hmm. It's priceless. But if a drug can make you better, worse, or stay the same, that's a 33 and a third, 33 and a third, 33 and a third percent chance. It performed at 28%. It underperformed chance. But if you're that 28%, I am not going to be able to convince you that it underperforms chance because in your world, that drug saved your life because you're not dead. The other two things we found because we combined drugs is that first off, when remdesivir worked, it seemed to work better in Germans. Oh. Yeah. So clearly there is something I would argue genetically in that group of people that remdesivir was beneficial for. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. I just know that looking at the data, and I did, it's like, well, this is strange. Most of the people that benefited were in the German facility. Could be somebody's falsifying data. I don't know. Mm 
But let's just presume that maybe there's something going on there. It was German and Belgium is what it was. So it was more than one place. So it's unlikely it was falsified. It seems that there's probably some genetic component going here, which I think is fascinating. Okay, that's just me. The other thing is that when it was combined with tocilizumab, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor, or interferon alpha-2 beta, which interferes with the production of viruses, people actually got worse. Now, I think that's fast, but you wouldn't know that unless you did a study where you did all these combinations and there was enough people in the studies, in the research that you went, wait a minute, the science is trying to tell me something. I don't Mm -hmm. yet know what it is, except Mm -hmm. that it's not good to put those drugs together. I mean, that's for some young researcher who wants to make a career, I think, out of, of looking at that combination. So my response to that is, wait a minute, Dr. Fauci, you're sitting here telling people This is a great drug. This is a prodrug that gets converted to an active drug in the liver that is a mimic for adenosine, which is one of the four nucleotide bases, which is randomly being placed in. So if it randomly gets in in enough spots, it'll interfere with the virus replicating. But if it doesn't, well, guess what? The virus replicates. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a shotgun approach. So, you know, my response is, you know, you may be head of NIAID, but come on, buddy. I mean, either, you know, if you don't get the science, then maybe you just shouldn't be head of NIAID. And after several decades, that was something that I raised as a question a long time ago, which is I am yet to see a published paper with Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, out of respect, as the lead author or principal investigator on in decades that I consider a substantial paper worth noting. Now, if you've been around for 40, 50 years, and some of us have uh, doing research, you'd like to think that maybe, it's sad to say, but I've been doing research for 54 years and Anthony's only been in that position for four decades. There ought to be something to show for it. And I can't Mm -hmm. tangibly lay my hands on anything. Mm -hmm. And that's bothersome to me. I mean, I'm bothered by people that say that they have uh, published more research in the last year than there are days in the year, because some of the people that are out there talking about the research they've published, if you look at what they've said over the last year, their numbers have jumped by more than 365. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty good at writing, but I can't, I can't (laughs) doing a paper a day, folks, and getting it published. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. Well, and that's another thing that's been troubling about the last two and a half years is that it seems that the conflict of interests with pharmaceutical corporations and their funding of the journals. And wasn't there a Lancet article that was later found to be fraudulently done, uh, just trying to smear hydroxychloroquine. And then a bunch of physicians signed that there was no way that this was a lab leak, absolutely had to come Mm -hmm. from the Wuhan wet market. So again, this theme that we've kind of stumbled upon of just not being able to trust those who are in positions and you as a scientist and with all your work, you're looking at Fauci and going, I'm not seeing it. And you have the ability to do that because you know what you know, and you have you are so well versed in so many different domains. But getting back to the average American citizen, it's really a breakdown of trust that's, that's profound. And I mean, I'm a psychologist who obviously I had to become a consumer of research. I have always known to be critical, like who funded the study, what lab is it coming right. from, do they have an agenda that they're trying to promulgate here? 
But I'm to the point where now I don't even like a peer-reviewed journal article. That's the gold standard. I don't know that I feel that way anymore. So there's so many levels of what we thought we could hang our hat on and we could feel that sure foundation beneath us that for me is tossed out the window. And I know I'm not alone. No, I mean, as I said, I reviewed for 17 medical journals and one physics journal. And one of the journals I used to review for was The Lancet. And for your listeners, typically when you get into the higher level journals like that, you don't want to give that up. I mean, one of the things that we do use academically is I'm a reviewer for Lancet. I mean, people talk sometimes, uh, attack some of my papers. He's never published in major journals. No, I published in the journal of the American College of Cardiology. I've published in the journal of nuclear cardiology. I've published in the number one nuclear journal in the world, the European Journal of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging. I mean, and a wide variety of, of these journals. But when that paper came out that you referred to, where they all got on board and said, no, this is naturally occurring, I sent in my resignation letter to Lancet. I mean, being a reviewer for Lancet meant something because it was a journal of something. But this was a political statement and not a scientifically thought out publication, which meant maybe I should go review for Ladies Home Journal. I don't know. No, no one's spoke to Ladies Home Journal, folks. You get the, the point. So, yeah, it does call into question. And if you think it calls it into question for the general public, try being a research scientist with 54 years and thinking, I have spent more than half a century working. I I like doing this. Mm -hmm. I like figuring out problems. I like taking something that nobody else has an answer to and at least understanding it better and sharing that. I don't even expect people to agree with me. You know, I still refer to my theory as a theory, even though it's the accepted model in medicine now, but it's my theory. So in my little brain, I just think yeah, it's a theory. It's my, it's my theory. I find it offensive when people talk about my theory and then misquote it. And particularly when I'm in the room, <laughs> in the room, it's like, <laughs> you're like, no, that's uh, not no, it. No, no, we're not doing that today. With the 10 letters campaign. Fauci is going to say that there was no gain of function research happening. Obama shut it down. He complied. Of course, I've heard, and I'm from reading Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, that it was funding for the research was, in fact, redirected through, I believe it was Eco Health Alliance. So there's going to be a lot of subterfuge and a lot to sort through. But your process of going to each state's attorney general, explain why that's the way to go. Okay, because currently going to the federal attorney general is not going to work. They're obviously not <laughs> going to do anything, right? Because yes, they're, yes. They, you can't you can't prosecute and defend. And guess who's going to be the defense attorney for these people? Yes. Okay. So they can't prosecute and defend. So it has to be the state attorney general. And what does okay. the ninth and tenth amendment of the Constitution state? That anything not given to the power of the federal government, specifically in the U.S. Constitution, belongs to the states. And the states have the opportunity and the power and responsibility to do this. So once the attorney generals start doing this, I've spoken with enough of them that once it starts happening, there will be more than one on board. And these the states where these letters are going out most rapidly are not the states that I think people would predict. Illinois right now has more than any other state. That does surprise me. That surprises me. Illinois followed closely by Florida and Texas, Alabama, Ohio, Utah, California has more letters coming out of it than you would believe. 
based upon how they want you to see. Sure, Th- sure. This, this country is about a 60-40 mix. It's just a matter of where you're at. So no state is out on this and no AG is out of this because every AG can simply say, look, I did my job. You asked me to do my job. Mm-hmm. I did my job. I gave it to a grand jury, mm-hmm. a real grand jury, not a pretend one. And they said, yes. And each state would have their own grand jury. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know much about law whatsoever. So, okay. Yes. And that would happen ideally around the same time or it would just be whenever each attorney general decides I've received enough letters, it's time to, to do something about this. So it's kind of an interesting race because the AGs I've talked to all recognize that this should be done, but they're leery about being that first one. But boy, okay. once that first one happens, they don't mm-hmm. want to be far behind. So the interesting thing is that whoever is first is going to be the one that said, yep, we've had enough. Mm-hmm. We are responsive to the people. Mm-hmm. I am going to step out there first because it's the right thing to do. This is my job. This is what I was elected to do. Mm-hmm. And they will, it's interesting, being first, <laughs> the most comfortable feeling. Yeah, but you live that life. <laughs> the, the most rewarding to decide that this must be done. Mm -hmm. It's not an option. This isn't an option for Mm -hmm. me, and it won't be an option for them. And again, this is about making them realize that they are responsive to the people. The people are not responsive to them. There isn't any other way except shutting this down. It's illegal. It violates everything this country states it stands for everything. And the rest of the world is looking at us. For sure. So my question is, wouldn't somebody like to be that first attorney general to be the one that say, yeah, you asked and here we come. And that's determined by we, the people sending those letters in and putting enough pressure that they can legitimately say, you know what? They can either say, this is the right thing to do and my people want it or I have no choice, my people want this done. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee if they take the second approach, once the indictments come out, they would go, and I knew it was a good idea because <laughs> right. it's the right thing to do. <laughs> exactly. And aren't I wonderful? Because remember, these AGs want to be elected and many of them have ambitions for something beyond this. Sure. And doing this type of case, this is the type of case that will get them the type of attention mm-hmm. to get the respect of the American people to get whatever they want to proceed forward with. There's a great amount of harmful actions being done by people for a variety of methods. My job is to point out what's right, what's wrong, to try to provide some of that clarity so that people listening to your program and others have the confidence to say, this guy is not doing it for him. And he's not trying to sell us a bill of goods. And how much more honest can you be than to actually look at both sides and go, you know, this isn't about one side or the other. This is about correcting the wrong that has been done. I'd like to think that the country that I help lead for my children and grandchildren is better than the one that was given to me. That's my personal motive. You want that? That's my personal motive. My grandparents told my parents they wanted a better world for them than they had. My Mm -hmm. parents told me they wanted a better world for me and my siblings than they had. 
I am not going to be the man who spent over a half a century doing research, slip beyond me, not react to it, and then leave my children and grandchildren a lousier country. And I don't want to leave a lousier country for you or your grandchildren or children. And like you said, the world is looking to us. And if we are. are if if we are supposedly this bastion of freedom, which my conception of my country has been horribly shaken in the last two and a half mm-hmm. years, it feels very empowering to be able to take action through what you've put together with both the tour, which I hope to be able to meet you in person on one of the tour locations at some point, and certainly by promoting the campaign. So I want to thank you so much for all you're doing. It's so critical. I know that there are many people who have been so frustrated and will feel, like I said, so empowered to be able to take action because you've put this in place. And for those who maybe are not really sure what's going on, but starting to have those questions that we've spoken to today, that wait a minute, let me be a little bit more savvy in my consumption of of the messaging I'm hearing. And if I am savvy, maybe to at least say, well, I don't necessarily know, but I certainly would like a grand jury so we could get get to some honest conversations and some truth to come out. You don't have to have been like someone like me who's been very skeptical of things from the beginning of all this because I'm just inherently anti-Big Pharma. And that's my prior beliefs and position. Even if you're someone who's been over here, like I kind of trusted everything. Don't you want the opportunity, a forum to be in place to get to the truth? If you're just even a bit skeptical, the 10 Letters campaign is a vehicle for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. We, the American people and the world deserve the truth. And what we've seen is that they're not going to tell us the truth. As you as you mentioned with the Pfizer, Moderna, the rest of that, they're not going to tell you anything they do not have to tell you. FOIA requests, give me a break. They're going to give you what they want, and they're going to delay it over time. And the longer this gets stretched out, the more people feel, oh, this is getting back to normal. But in reality, it's not. This is the new normal. The usurpation of our rights and our right to actually know what's going on. You know, again, we're paying the bills for these people (laughs) and they used our money to do this and manipulated us. And to lie and to swindle and to kill. Yeah. Dr. Fleming, I want to thank you so much for your time and for all that you're doing. It's incredibly important work. And You are uniquely positioned with your degrees and your background in all these areas to not only look at the science and the medical elements, but also to understand the legal elements. So we are so grateful for all you're doing. And again, thank you for your time and for sharing with my audience. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. The love and life hack for this week is 10letters.org. 10letters.org. Please check it out and please consider joining the movement. Again, even if you're someone who is perfectly comfortable with how everything has proceeded, don't we all have a right to know this information? I mean, we pay these folks salaries. Our tax dollars keep all these people employed. And the understanding is that they work for us on our behalf, to our benefit, to take care of us, protect us. That's what a government is supposed to do, is take care of its citizens. And without full disclosure, how do we know if that's actually happening? And if that is actually happening, then there should be no problem with the grand jury because everything's been on the up and up and no one has anything to hide. So no problem. So I invite you to join us by hopping over to 10letters.org and write to your state's attorney general so we can all 
finally get some answers. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. It means so much to me. I really appreciate you, and I appreciate you being a part of the Love and Life family. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson Abril, and until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen anderson Abril.